folks, I'm Tilden Reamer-Leach, and you're listening to Forces That Move Us, Lost Homes and Solutions Amidst the Chaos. So, I was in the middle of writing this podcast episode. I'm back in California at this point, and I was fast asleep when all of a sudden I felt the bed shaking underneath me, and then it all stopped. I thought to myself, oh, okay, that was an earthquake. And I rolled over and I fell back asleep. (laughs) In the morning, I couldn't get out of my head the contrast between my experiences during this California earthquake and the way people experienced the earthquake in Ecuador. I had an immediate flashback to the countless stories I heard over the course of the year I spent living there. Vendíamos ceviche nosotros y veníamos con todos nuestros hijos en la playa. Eran cinco para las siete nosotros veníamos pasando por el mercado de Atacame, comprando unos panes y una cola veníamos nosotros. We were selling ceviche on the beach and we were walking back with all of our six kids. It was five minutes to seven and we were passing by the market of Atacames to buy some bread and cokes. We were all walking and talking. We passed over a bridge and we felt something like, oh, what was that? But since we were walking, we only felt it a little. We got to the central market and my third son was getting his bread when the earthquake of April 16th, 2016 happened. Everybody jumped and started to run. The buildings were falling down. Everything was moving. The power cables short-circuited. There were pieces of houses that fell all around us. Boom, boom. Pieces of metal roofing crashed to the ground. People started to scream and left their cars by the side of the road and started to run. One crazy man started to yell, tsunami, tsunami, here comes the waves, the waves. Since we live close to the ocean, we started to run. We ran, we ran, and in the middle of running, we lost track of one of our kids, the smallest one of them all. I yelled, Sofia, Sofia, and we heard ahead of us. Papi, mami, here I am. She was already ahead of all of us. She was the first one. <laughs> Later that day, once the earthquake was over, I was talking to my cousin. He said, yes, I'm serious, brother. I'll help you. You need to find shelter. Where are you going to sleep? All of your things are damaged. I said, are you serious, brother? And he was like, yeah, let's go. So we brought all of our things and our kids to a central location where they were beginning to set up tents. And I started helping set up tents way into the night till around 11 p.m. Then they started to call families to come sleep in the tents, but only families who were on the list. I had written my family first on the list, so we got in. I was like, let's go, family. We grabbed a tent and slept there, all six of us. A few months later, they were dismantling the refugee camp. They offered people money, but we didn't want money. We had nowhere to live. They said we had to leave. There wasn't another option. So we fought for a tent. We said, please, at least give us a tent. 
pero por lo menos regálenos una carpa. No, no se puede. Por favor, regálenos la carpa. Ya quedamos hoy. Please give us a tent. There were 21 families. A lot of them had family they could stay with. The rest of us didn't have a place to go. The families who were left, we made a video. We didn't cry to get pity. We cried so that they would understand. Nos inundamos, el agua hasta las rodillas. Fue algo desesperante también. Todo una tras cosa de otra. Hemos sufrido bastante para estar aquí donde estamos. We lived in another tent for another two years, and the tent flooded. We had water up to our knees. It was desperate times, one thing, then another. We have suffered to be where we are. I hope Clever and his family's story can give you a sense of the kinds of stories I heard over and over again during my time on the coast. Over the course of a year, I was able to interview over 350 people about their experiences during the earthquake. And they all shared similar stories about the lack of reliable news reporting, fears of tsunamis hitting the coast, anxiety, and solidarity among neighbors, and the long road ahead to recovery. Their stories could have been mine, or yours even, if we had just been in a different place at a different moment in time. As I'm sure you can tell by now, in this week's episode, we're going to be talking about Ecuador's earthquake of April 16, 2016, which hit the northwestern coast around 7.50 p.m. that day. The earthquake had a magnitude of 7.8 and left around 40,000 people homeless. The earthquake has had a deep impact on the local economy and society to this day. There was an immediate unemployment spike that reached about 50% of the affected population. Many local schools were shut down in favor of larger centralized schools. Petty crime rose. And Ecuador as a whole felt fragile, yet unified. But when I first arrived on the coast, I knew none of this. <laughs> I first heard about the earthquake, like many of you did, if you can remember that is, about three years ago, on the news or on the radio. A 3.8 earthquake that struck the coastal Manabi province in Ecuador, already claiming the lives of an estimated 600 people. This moment of solidarity is important for us in the Bronx, not only because the people that have been affected have loved ones who call the Bronx home, but more importantly because we realize that we cannot take the pain away. When I heard the news, I immediately texted my next door neighbor from when I lived in Ecuador as a child to see if his family had survived. Hi, Carlos, if you're listening. <laughs> he let me know that his family was safe. They live in Quito, the capital city, which is a six-hour drive from the earthquake epicenter. I felt much better knowing they were unharmed but I still had a lot of questions about what happened after the earthquake. What were the biggest needs that went unmet? How does losing your home like that overnight affect your sense of well-being? How might a traumatic event like this change how you relate to the world and how you think about your future? There are so many questions I wanted to find the answers to. And the first step for me was knowing that I wasn't searching for one right answer, 
rather, the responses to my questions would change based on who I was talking to, their background, how much they lost in the earthquake, the historical and systemic discrimination they have faced. There are various questions. The answers lie in the eye and positionality of the beholder. Ah, I knew back then that I would probably find more questions than answers. Oh, if only I had known just how right I would be. Okay, so, I thought I would start by sharing with you the journal I recorded from my first night on the coast. Okay, guys, so I just finished my first official day on the coast. Oh, man, as you can probably hear, I'm a little tired, but uh, so much to tell you. Okay, so today I walked the streets of Atacames for the first time. So Atacames is a relatively small fishing village on the coast in the province of Esmeraldas. Walking around on the streets today, it's it's a bit chaotic actually, um, with little motorcycle taxis beeping and honking their, their horns. Um, for anyone who has been to Southeast Asia, they're very similar to the sort of tuk-tuks you would see there. But they kind of drive every which way um, don't really follow traffic laws. And people in the little town, they're in a hurry, you know? They're moving things, getting things done. But uh, the pace of life isn't anything close to something you might see in New York City, for example. People here still seem to have time to chat with their neighbors. Of course, everyone knows each other. <laughs> Drink coconut juice in the shade or wait in a hammock for the peak fishing time of the day. And all the buildings seem to have been there for decades. You know, paint is sort of chipping off the walls. Apartment buildings have huge sections of walls that are sort of crumbling apart. And <clears throat> walking on the streets every few blocks, you see a big pile of rubble just kind of on the ground. I remember the destruction of the earthquake and all of the families that were crushed inside their homes and I had to take a second look at the piles of rubble. This morning when I was entering the town for the first time on a bus, the person sitting next to me sort of tapped my, my shoulder and told me to look out the window and he showed me a few big apartment buildings that were being rebuilt um, and the buildings were all on the right-hand side of the road as we came in. And he pointed out that on the other side of the road, on the left-hand side, were all of the slums and the poor neighborhoods in the town. It was impressive. You know, poverty and wealth was literally divided by a road. Wealthy Ecuadorians, mostly people from Quito, come to the coast to vacation and lounge by the beach. They don't have to see the reality on the other side of the street. You know, many people warn me that it's dangerous to go to that other side. That as a gringa and a woman, 
They might easily rob me or do something worse. But I, I really, I can't think about those things too much. You know, I have to go to the other side and, and really know how people lived through the earthquake, what their experiences were. Okay, guys, I know you must be thinking, why are we talking about an earthquake that happened in 2016 in Ecuador? There are so many other earthquakes with greater damage and death tolls. And I think these are completely valid things to think. But just hear me out for a second, okay? Number one, I think we need to stop thinking of these things as isolated incidents. Something that happened somewhere else to someone we don't know. Number two, when will we finally learn from history and our past mistakes? I'm hoping that by looking back at this one isolated incident, can provide us with some guidelines for how we could think about better mitigation and response plans, and how we think about people who are directly impacted by an earthquake. Number three, I'm sorry to say this, but the ripples of the earthquake are still being felt to this day in Ecuador. The hardest thing about the aftermath of a natural disaster is there is a lot of immediate national and international aid. But after a few months, people start to forget. It may be hard to believe, but while doing my research, I discovered that many people are still without a home. The ripple effects of the earthquake have not subsided. It's not over, even after three years. Let me share with you one of my journals after living on the coast for just a month. Hi everyone. So today I had a hard-hitting experience that really made me realize limitations of my podcasting work and I thought I should share it with you guys. Sorry there's some dogs in the background. <laughs> some acquaintances of mine told me about a place called Los Albergues aka the shelter. So it's an abandoned schoolhouse where 50 families have been living after they lost their homes in the earthquake. The government placed them there since their houses collapsed into rubble, but now it's been three years, three years of waiting, hoping to get out. Loved ones have died in there. The people are kind of running out of hope. So when I went there, you can't really see the makeshift shelter from the outside. When you get past um, the front gate, the first thing you see is a rundown basketball court with faded court lines and just a wire rim for a hoop. But as your eyes adjust to the light and you start looking around, you can see a U-shaped building kind of framing the court with crumbling walls and boarded up windows from the inside and old bed sheets that are sort of tacked up where there used to be doors. I was told that five families live in each of the abandoned classrooms. I sort of hesitantly peeked inside one class classroom. Um, I didn't want to invade anyone's privacy, but I wanted to see what it was like. And I saw mattresses sort of haphazardly on the floor 
without any bed sheets and piles of clothes drying on makeshift lines and one little random cook stove in the corner. I asked the people there and they told me there's one communal toilet, but it's never worked. And the kids just go to the bathroom on the basketball court. And neighbors around the school have grown hostile because these families are considered invaders. You know, people not native to, to the neighborhood. So neighbors throw rocks into the school all the time. And this has just become their new normal. Mi nombre es Jacinta Alexandra Charcopa Valencia. Y mi experiencia aquí es que tengo cosas buenas y cosas malas. My name is Jacinta Alexandra Charcopa Valencia and my experience here is I've had good experiences and bad experiences. Las buenas es que hemos pasado momentos bonitos aunque estamos aquí en el albergue, pero hay que darle gracias primeramente a Dios por lo que Dios ha hecho. The good is that we have had beautiful moments here together. Although we are in el albergue, we have to be happy first for God and what he has done. And then there are moments when I just want to be gone, where I don't want to be here anymore. I want to be there. I would like to leave because we can't sleep. We can't even go play on the basketball field because instead of rain, it, it rains down rocks. I give thanks to God. Without him, we wouldn't be anything. We give thanks when we breathe because of the life he gives each of us. Sometimes I ask God, please have mercy and get us out of here fast because we don't want to be here any longer because there are people here that cause us a lot of harm. I am 37 years old. I have eight children, but it makes me sad sometimes because I have my small children and we have no work without money to feed our children. When we have money, we send our kids to school. When we don't have money, they can't go. We have to go out begging. Sometimes we ask our families, but they are too tired from helping us. Sometimes people on the street help. Before the earthquake, I had my own business. Even though I was a poor person, I lived well, thanks to God. I have been living here on the coast now for a month. And I've gotten a chance to interview many people about living through the earthquake. About sleeping on the streets and the fear and the unknown. But the interviews I did today were different. There was a real sense of agony in people's voices when I recorded their stories. 
Their pain is present tense. It is happening now. It was unfolding in front of me as I interviewed them. I felt so useless. It is one thing to have someone recount their pain to you, and it is entirely another to watch and listen to them living it. I couldn't help but think, what will this podcast do for them? I mean, you know, by the time this podcast gets published, they will either have suffered through another year of living in this hell, or maybe, maybe someone will have helped them. (laughs) I don't know. Hopefully by the time I'm producing this story, I can tell some kind of positive ending to the story. But I really don't know. I do have an update for you about Jacinta. I'll tell you about it later on in the podcast. Right now, I want to know what you think. Who should be responsible for the well-being of Jacinta and her eight children? It's not a question with a clear answer. Maybe the answer is, it's her life, it's her responsibility, plain and simple. But it's hard to put the whole burden on her shoulders when she has been part of a system that was already stacked against her success. And the the problem in the area where we are is there is a lot of poverty, there's lack of education, teen pregnancy, violence, alcoholism, domestic abuse. It's a pretty rough place. And we're talking about generations of, of this problem. So really what the earthquake did is kind of shown a spotlight on an already troubled area. And so help came here that never would have come otherwise. So in a way, the earthquake brought resources that the people had been needing for many, many years. What the community at large needs is a lot of dedication and um, an organization. It would be great if the government would get more involved too, but if a government would um, work together with organizations and they would come to this area with like, decades-long program and help these very acute problems because really now it's almost three years after the earthquake and much of what was happening before the earthquake is happening still people don't have jobs people are still getting pregnant when they're 13 there's still a lot of alcoholism Um, because of the earthquake there's less tourism and Kanoa is a tourist town so it's even in some ways more difficult to, to get ahead and so there's still a lot to be done here. This is Sarah Hainenbauer. She is an American who has spent many years living in Ecuador and actually lived through the earthquake. We will hear a lot more from her in episode four when I talk about the creative solutions people have come up with after losing their homes in the earthquake. Sarah does bring up some important points though. Many problems of global warming and natural disasters are talked about as though they will affect all of humanity. (laughs) It becomes easy to overlook the fact that even at the epicenter of an earthquake, there are people who are unequally threatened or vulnerable. When we think about natural disaster aid and relief work, we are really talking about funding that needs to address much more than just houses lost, let's say. It's people's sources of income, their emotional stability, 
um, generations of being marginalized for being Afro-Ecuadorian. For example, the province of Esmeraldas, where I've been living on the coast, is the only Afro-Ecuadorian majority province in the whole country. The legend goes that there was a slave ship headed to Peru that crashed unexpectedly when it hit sandbars off the coast of Ecuador. The slaves aboard the ship escaped and became some of the first free Africans on the continent. They were never used as slaves in Ecuador. However, racism and racist policies have continued to this day. And so, getting back to the point, how are relief organizations supposed to address this type of systemic oppression? I think that would be pretty darn hard to do. Instead, I think we need to change how we look at and respond to natural disasters. We need to rethink how we provide international aid. Instead of our current reactionary approach, we need to focus on long-term development work in countries. And if we think back to Asinta and the abandoned schoolhouse and ask ourselves, who is responsible? Another logical answer, I think, could be the Ecuadorian government. But here we get caught in another problem, which is the world we live in doesn't have a standard system for how governments and international aid organizations should respond or what their compromise to their people should be. Isn't that crazy? I was kind of taken aback when I heard that for the first time. Let me say that in another way. We have no international laws or UN standards even that outline how governments should help people who have been displaced because of natural disasters. But let's take a look and see how the Ecuadorian government responded. La información oficial demoró cuatro o cinco horas en, en ser distribuida. Fue el vicepresidente del, del Ecuador el que habló. Four or five hours after the earthquake, there still was no official information distributed about the earthquake. About four hours after the earthquake, the vice president of Ecuador finally spoke. The president, Correa, was in Italy at the time, and there was an embargo on information distribution. In Ecuador, there's a law that punishes any type of information that can cause chaos, nerves, or things like that. This is a new law that the Correa government passed. So on the TV channels, we saw people dancing, playing music, anything except news of the earthquake. You could only find out information about the earthquake watching international media, Colombian news, CNN, things like that. But in Ecuador, there was an embargo on information until the vice president spoke. After the initial shock subsided, and people knew that there wasn't an immediate threat of a tsunami, the government started to arrange makeshift shelters and refugee camps. After the first week or so, things started to, to become more organized, but there was still always a problem that uh, people didn't want to stay permanently in, in a plastic tent. And that a lot of, a lot of the uh, tents that were set up came from China. They, they were very kind of small and, and almost waterproof. So, so people were complaining a lot that they were sweating inside them and it was very uncomfortable. And, and in a lot of cases, there were quite a, f a few people living in these, these tents. So it was, wasn't a very adequate uh, solution for more than a couple of weeks. Nevertheless, there were some families that were staying, that stayed in those tents for more than a year, so. You're hearing from Marvin here. 
another central character in our next episode. I just wanted to add here that there are still people living in these blue plastic refugee tents. Here is my journal entry from when I first went inside one of these tents. Okay, so I'm approaching one of these refugee tents right now. This is one of 8,000 tents that were donated by the Chinese government. Um, the tent is sort of this big sky blue color and there's Chinese characters written on the side, which just feels so out of place to see here in Ecuador. And I know there's a family living in this tent right now, but they're gonna let us see inside. Okay, let's see. Okay, whoa. Um, so from the inside, you see sort of four blue plastic walls. There are two sort of windows on either side that are also made out of clear plastic. And there is one twin mattress in here. But this tent really doesn't seem big enough to hold much of anything else. I can't believe families of six people live in these. And they're so hot. <laughs> There's absolutely no ventilation. And it kind of smells like burning plastic inside. Okay, um, I, need to, I need to get out of here now. All right. I can't fathom what it must have been like to live for years in one of these tents. And the kicker is the Ecuadorian government decided it would provide housing for people who lost their homes. But you had to live in one of these government-sanctioned refugee camps. There were rules and curfews, no pets allowed, very minimal privacy, and terrible sanitary conditions. Manuel Payares, who was the Spanish voice you heard earlier, mentioned to me that there were multiple reasons the then-President Correa created the system for the camps. For one, Correa had a new election cycle coming up. You know, what better way to create a base of supporters than to have communities of people who are literally depending on your government's aid. And this way, the government could more easily direct where the aid actually went. Primero, creo que el sistema del gobierno no siempre, pero en una gran cantidad, beneficia a muchas personas que son cercanas al gobierno, que tienen vínculos. The government, not always, but in a large part, tried to benefit many people who are close to the government, people that have strong political ties. So when the government started providing houses for victims of the earthquake, corruption entered. Many things came in. You know, even the girlfriend of the man who works in the government has a home. The mother has a house, the cousin has a house. Y las personas más vulnerables, las que están más lejos del poder, y las que tienen... And the most vulnerable people, those who are furthest from power, and those who have less capacity to do things because they have less education, are those who have less access to houses. The politics of environmental refugees, their definition, their legitimacy, the determination of who might be responsible for them, remains deeply contentious partly because government bodies are simultaneously involved in the displacement of their own people in one instance, while also being responsible for the care of their own citizens in another instance. 
As Manuel describes, this is a classic story of government corruption. Ecuadorians in general are pretty pessimistic towards government figures, and have come to expect these types of things. But as a foreigner, it was still pretty hard to believe that the national and the local government could be so corrupt. I have unfortunately since learned that corruption comes in many different forms and does not just happen at the national level, but also at the neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor level. And I don't have a solid answer for you as to why it happens or how to stop it. It feels like the classic chicken or the egg type question. The only conclusion I have found is that corruption breeds where there is a perceived sense of lacking, of never quite having enough, which leads people to only think about their own self-interests. I just want to say one more thing on the subject, which is you won't guess the type of houses the government built. Oh man, they built more houses out of cement, which is the exact type of house that fell down during the earthquake. Since on the coast, it is customary to mix sand in with cement, which ends up corroding metal rebar support beams. Manuel works very closely with people who have been repeatedly marginalized and overlooked by the government, and he shares some pretty interesting insights. It's very interesting to spend a lot of time in those communities, because one learns a lot of things in this country. It's very interesting to spend a lot of time in these poor communities, because you learn a lot of things about this country, a lot of problems we have, a lot of deficiencies a lot of injustice and especially how difficult it is for those people to get ahead, right? Because it's like most things are against the poor. I mean, in Ecuador, a poor person pays 20 times more for the same amount of water, dirty water I should add, than a wealthy person. In the rich neighborhoods of Ecuador, we pay 50 cents for a cubic meter of drinking water and poor people pay up to $10 for a cubic meter of dirty water that they have to go out and collect. On top of that, I've realized that many of the problems, they're easy problems, they're silly problems to solve, but there's a lack of will, a sense of mysticism on the part of the government to really address and solve the problems of these people. What Manuel is saying is true and plain to see when you cross over to the other side of the street. I've seen people lining up with yellow buckets in their hands to receive dirty water that comes by in these big trucks. It's only really good for washing dishes, um, said one of the women that I asked, but it's better than nothing. I've been to when I have a chance, I sit down with some of these people. I'll ask a woman what she does, how much she earns, and she'll tell me something like, I make hair braids on the beach. And then I'll ask, when do you make braids on the beach? And she will say, when it's a national holiday. By this point, I can calculate that Ecuador has maybe 60 holidays a year. Now the question is, how much do you earn in a day? She'll say, $20 a day. Then you realize that the most a person can make for income is between $120 and $200 a year. How is a woman supposed to rebuild her house with that kind of income? This is something that I'm always learning, seeing. Many people think that poor people don't get ahead because they don't want to, 
But in reality, poverty is like a weight. And the poorer you are, the more problems you have, and the harder it is to get out. So it's very easy when you are above the problem to say, ah, those who are down there, they do not want to leave. But in most cases, it's difficult. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. And one other thing I noticed when I was talking to poor Ecuadorians about their access to resources and ability to get themselves out of their own situations is that it's really hard to create a unified front against something like government corruption when everyone in your community has varied interests and needs. The poor as a category of its own is really hard to define. It fractures across lines of race, gender, you know, where you live, religion, which makes it that much harder to unify around one common cause. One thing I had to keep in mind during my whole time in Ecuador was how I showed up in these poor communities as a white Westerner. During my interview with Sarah, she really brought it home for me. As an American herself, I think she's mulled this over quite a lot. I think us as Westerners from the States, we have this very interesting way of thinking that we're saving people. That is exactly what we shouldn't think. We're not coming here to save anybody's lives. They don't need a savior. We don't know better than they do. They have a lot to teach us, come in with an open mind. Um, we do have a very great philanthropical culture, which isn't very common in Ecuador. So there is a positive to it, but sometimes we come into it um, because we're looking for our own, our own story in a way. You know, like, okay, I'm gonna be a volunteer, I'm gonna go do this, I'm gonna save these poor third world people who this, that, and the other thing, you come in with an idea of what it is, and then you take a million pictures, and you go home, and you tell all your friends all the great things you did. But what happened to the people? You know, like, we're talking about real people here. This is their lives, this is their culture, this is their community, this is their future, their past, their history, everything. So that's huge, and for me, that has been the biggest um, they call it a choque cultural and, and I'm from the States and I have this like clash with my own countrymen like hey you guys you're not saving the world here you know these people they just need a leg up they're perfectly capable of taking care of themselves they're just in a rough spot you could be in this position someday I mean really when it comes to mother nature we can get our butt kicked all of us you know and that's just how it is Obviously what I'm saying advice-wise, first of all, it's hard to even, for some, to imagine that that's an issue and then to change it's big. I'm not saying don't help. I mean, we're all on this planet together. It's, it's a great thing to want to help. But just go in it being sensitive, being sensitive to the culture and knowing that you won't have all the answers, even though you think you might. <laughs> Sarah is so right here. I am constantly reminded that one of the best things I can do is listen. Which is what you guys are doing too right now. Props on you. And it's true. The next great earthquake could hit any one of us at any time. Thinking about these questions, sharing people's stories, adjusting our paradigm, maybe, of who might qualify to receive assistance might soon be of vital importance to your life. To give you just a quick example, according to the International Displacement Monitoring Center's GRID 
2019 report, California suffered the most destructive outbreak of wildfires in its history in 2018. More than 350,000 new displacements were recorded and more than 100 lives lost. The U.S. was also struck by Hurricane Florence and Mitchell, which triggered nearly 850,000 displacements between them. And if we look at global numbers, in 2018, exposure to natural disasters resulted in 17.2 million people who were displaced. This is almost double the number of people who became refugees and therefore received international assistance because they were fleeing war and conflict. For those of you who need some clarification on definitions here, refugees are people who have crossed an international border because of fear of war and violence. People who are displaced from their homes, who can't or choose not to cross a border, are not considered refugees. These internally displaced people do not have specific status in international law with rights specific to their situation. And there is even more debate and confusion around who can be deemed an environmentally displaced person. Sure, suffering from natural disasters could count, but how about suffering from a mining company entering your area? Or how about the slow effects of climate change that alter water availability over many years? We will explore these situations in future episodes. Que nos saque rápido de aquí. Si alguien está escuchando este mensaje, que por favor ayuden con esa donación. Get us out of here quickly. If someone is listening to this message, please help us with that donation for a bamboo house because it is impossible to sleep here. People like you heard Jacinta and decided to do something about it. We will talk more about her story in episode five. And in the next three episodes, we will explore a variety of creative solutions that people have found after they lost their homes to the earthquake. If you would like more information and photos from the stories on this podcast, please go to www.forcesthatmoveus.com. If you would like to listen to a Spanish version of this podcast, please search Lo Que Nos Mueve on iTunes or by going to our website. In the Spanish podcast, we cover the same themes, but sometimes the content is different. I'll also post a link in the show notes. Thank you to the National Geographic Society for supporting the production of this podcast. And thank you to Alex Alviar for the lovely intro music. You can find the full album by searching Equatorial on Spotify. Other music in this podcast includes Sin Gritar by Sir Manique, Northern Lights by Chris Hagen, Suzuki's Theme by Endless Love, Dreaming Days by Ketza, Walking on Clouds and Starting Over by Audio Binger, 
Dr. Dan Will See You Now by Matt Oakley, Hot Shot by Scott Holmes, and Falling Down by Ryan Little.